the redemption of the souls of man. And I trust that as we, every time we hear the gospel and every time we hear the promises of God and we sing about his glory and we read about his glory, uh, we remember the God that we serve and the God that loves us so much uh, that uh, he died for us. Uh, again, not because we were worthy of it, but out of his goodness and out of his grace, uh, he has done that for us. Well, take your Bibles again, if you would, and go to Romans 15 this morning, Romans 15. And we're going to be looking today specifically at verses 8. Uh, we'll begin in verse number 8 uh, with an intention of getting down through verse number 17. Uh, we'll see how that goes this morning. But we're going to deal with the subject this morning. We've been singing about the glory of God. And we're going to deal with the subject this morning of glorifying God together. Glorifying God together. Uh, that has been a theme that Paul has written to us about and has written to the church there at Rome uh, regarding their love for one another, their, their need to be like-minded. He's been dealing with the subjects of the liberty uh, of a believer, and this is all coming to a, a culmination. It's all coming to a place where Paul is going to say, now here is what we do as a result of all that we understand and all that we have been taught. Now, in order for us to get to verse 8, let's go ahead and just for context's sake, read verses 6 and 7, because this will tie the thoughts together this morning. He says that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. Notice again there in verse number 6 and 7, the Bible uses the term receive. Receive ye one another. And how do we do that? Verse 7 tells us, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. We are to receive one another as Christ has received us. To receive someone or to receive into is to welcome into the fellowship with. In other words, when Christ received us, he was receiving us into his fellowship in that we would have fellowship with him. Or we might even say he has welcomed us into a communion with him. This particular quarter's Free Grace broadcaster in the entryway there deals with the subject of communion with God. And there are some wonderful thoughts in there. There are some, some tremendous uh, messages that were preached from preachers of old dealing with our communion with God. Paul is talking about that kind of a similarity. In other words, the communion that we have with Christ is the communion that we ought to have with one another. The same way Christ received us, we ought to receive one another. How did Christ receive those who are believers in him? He received the weak. He received the strong. He received the poor. He received the rich. He received male. He received female. He received slave and freeman. And he received Jew and Gentile alike. 
Now remember, the main context has been there was a dispute or a division between the Jews and the Gentiles who were struggling with their own liberty and what should still be observed. Paul is bringing this to a culmination by them understanding, listen, as Christ has received all of these various types of individuals, he has received Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, why are you making a distinction between Jew and Gentile if Christ has received them both? into his fellowship. Now we understand biblically speaking, there is a there are promises that were given to Israel. There are promises that were given to the Jew, but there are also the promises that were intended for both the Jew and the Gentile. To receive them or to welcome them into is to welcome them and love them as Christ loved them. Why did Christ receive us unto himself? For his own glory. Why do we receive one another for the glory of God? Not so that we're just labeled as nice people, not so that we're labeled as a friendly congregation, so that we give God the glory when we receive other believers like Christ has received us. It's an amazing thing when you start studying the glory of God. We often think that the glory of God can only be demonstrated by these miraculous large works But the reality is, is we glorify God every time we receive a believer in the same way that he received others. He received them into his fellowship. Now, we understand that when we begin trying to uh, receive one another, our humanity gets in the way. Our personal biases get in the way. We begin to look at things that bug us, things that disturb us. But understand this about Christ receiving us. He did not receive us because we were perfect. He didn't receive us because we were even good. He didn't receive us because he didn't see a fault in us. He received us with all of that just as we are. Now, we're not intended to stay as we are. Jesus Christ had no hope of gaining anything from us. In other words, we did not add anything to him. The only thing us being received in Christ did was brought more glory unto him. We didn't add any value to God. We didn't make Jesus Christ more glorious because we're now part of his his family. Jesus himself welcomed us and he covered those faults. He covered that sin that we've already sung about this morning, that sin that we've already seen in the book of Isaiah. He covered that sin and he welcomed us into a relationship with him, not because we offered him something, but because it brought him glory. It's an amazing truth that often when we go around doing things, we say we're doing it for the glory of God, but sometimes I think we're doing it so that we'll get the glory. We're never to attempt to take a single ounce of glory from God. We're not to take claim for anything that God is doing. We're not even to take the reality, take this, the statement that God is, can only do this if I. No, God does all that he does in spite of us. He doesn't have to have us to glorify himself. Now, why is this important about Christ being receiving as Christ received? Well, let's think about the history of Jesus himself. If you go back to verse number eight, this gives us more insight as to what he's saying. Paul says, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. 
translated, Jesus Christ was a minister to the Jew. Now here's what we know about Jesus' ministry. Jesus himself was born a Jew. He was made under the law. He was circumcised and obedient to the laws of Moses. So think about this. Jesus was following all of the Mosaic laws. He was, he was perfectly obedient to all of those things. Never once did he fail. He was, in fact, the promised Messiah. He was the seed of a woman. He was of the seed of Abraham and of the seed of David. This was to confirm something about who Jesus was. This was to confirm that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise, every prophecy, every type, every shadow, every picture. Jesus was the confirmation that there was a Messiah. Now, here's where the Jews had a problem. Since Jesus was a Jew... Since Jesus was born of the seed of Abraham, since Jesus was obedient to all of the Jewish laws, he must only be a Jewish Messiah. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's what Paul is getting at. He's telling these Jews, wait a minute, wait, you've got this entirely wrong. Just because he was born a Jew doesn't mean he's only a Jewish Messiah. And it doesn't mean that you can claim ownership to Jesus and say he is only ours. I would tell you that same thing this morning. The Bible tells us here that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. Do you realize this about Jesus? His primary ministry, the people he preached to, the people that he was in contact with were not mostly Gentiles. They were mostly Jews. You studied the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, most of the messages that were preached were preached to Jewish people. Some people would even say, Jesus never really preached to the Gentiles. That's why the Jews began to get the idea, those that later on believed and said, listen, this Messiah, he's our Messiah. Now listen, I would, I would guard against this and I would tell us as believers this morning, uh, we are sometimes tempted to try to lay claim and put a stake on God and say, no, he's our Jesus only. Uh, you, we, we are the only ones that have the corner market on Jesus. We're the only one who know. We're the only ones he died for. We're the only ones. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to go on a dissertation and expl explanation by pouring Scripture upon Scripture and telling them, listen, that this is so far removed from the truth. No, Jesus in the Old Testament actually says all nations should call upon him. See, Jesus was not just the Messiah of the Jew. Some of those Jews believed that Jesus' mercy, Jesus' salvation was only for the Jew and not for the Gentile. But then notice what Paul says in verse number 9. After he tells them that Jesus was the minister to circumcision, notice the end of that verse, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that, verse number 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, we sit there and we read this today and we think nothing of it. But what Paul was writing in those days to those Jewish believers telling them all of those things that were confirmed to your Jewish fathers and all those promises that you have tried to hold a corner on, they were not just for you, but they were to confirm those promises also to the Gentiles that they could also glorify God. Now you and I say amen right there because that's you and I. 
We're of the Gentile. We are that very group of people that Paul says, wait a minute, Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He is the Messiah of everyone who's guilty of sin. And who is that? Every single person who's ever lived and ever will live is guilty. And yet it says that all these things that Jesus did, even though he was a primarily a minister to the Jew, was so that the Gentiles would also glorify God for his mercy. As it is written for this cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. Remember who Paul's primary ministry was. As Jesus' primary ministry was to the Jew, Paul himself was a Jew, but his primary ministry was to whom? The Gentile. What an irony. Here is Jesus, the Jew, preaching to the Jews, but here's Paul, the Jew, but now he's preaching to the Gentiles about the mercy and the grace and the salvation of God. This is such a pivotal passage when we understand what's happening here. Those prophecies of the Old Testament were not just to be revelation to the, the Jews. They were to, be re- to reveal to the Gentiles that you have been included in the purpose and the redemptive work of Christ. That's why it, it, it bothers me so when someone says, we don't, we don't need to pay attention to the Old Testament because we're not Jewish. No, the Old Testament points just as importantly, he is the fulfillment even to the Gentile, not just the Jew. His mercy, that the Gentiles might glorify God. You realize that the object of all of God's highest work is his glory. That's the object. That's the goal, is that God's glory would be seen. Not that you and I might receive something. But again, notice that phrase, His mercy. If you're a believer this morning, you glorify God for the mercy that's been extended to you in Christ. If you find no reason to glorify God today, you have never received His mercy. I would dare say if we could go a single day without reflecting on the glory of God and His mercy, I would dare say there's something wrong in what we call faith. His mercy is in Scripture. His mercy is demonstrated throughout the Word of God to be an encouragement not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile. The Jewish believers... Hope for salvation lies in the same merit and same righteousness that is in Christ alone. The Jew isn't saved because they are the seed of Abraham. Our study of Romans has taught us that, right? It's not just about being Jewish. In other words, a Jewish person cannot become a believer in Christ through the own merit of his or her own. It must be through the merit of Jesus Christ alone. Though access to God is the same, whether I'm a Jew or a Gentile, I have to have His righteousness. If we were to put a quick definition of what salvation really is, salvation is God's mercy to the unworthy. The unworthy Jew and the unworthy Gentile. Salvation is God's mercy to the unworthy. Even though Christ's ministry was limited to the Jews, The effectiveness of his work on the cross was not just confined to them. The Old Testament would prove out to us that the Gentiles had an interest 
in the work on the cross. It was the purpose of God before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ, as he performed that work on the cross of Calvary, that Gentiles as well as Jews would glorify God because of his mercy. That's why we glorify God today is because of his mercy, not because he gives us nice stuff in this life. We don't thank God that we have a house to live in. That's, that, that's wonderful. It's wonderful to have food on your table. But we thank God primarily because of his mercy and a salvation that's been given to an unworthy soul. That's you and I. All the other things we get, those are just bonuses. Those are benefits. Because if we had all those things and we didn't have the mercy of God, we would have nothing. Yet Jew and Gentile alike are told to receive one another because of the shared mercy they have in Christ. There is no scripture anywhere that would encourage the presumption of a man to suppose that they could base their salvation or merit their salvation on their own works. There's not a single verse in scripture that says, This mercy has been received by anything or as a result of anything you have done. Again, go back to what Paul is saying. Receive one another as Christ has received you. You're not hoping to gain anything from them. You know, sometimes we in our own depravity, in our own subconscious depravity, we draw people to ourselves for the sole purpose of getting something from them. We've all done it. We've allowed ourselves to conveniently get near somebody who can benefit us. Christ did not come near to us to gain any benefit from us. And that's what he's saying here. You're not to receive one another because they bring a specific benefit to you. You're to receive them because you share a common reception of the mercy of God. That's it. And when you do that, you bring God God glory. Think about how difficult we make it in our churches and in our life. When we look at the reception of other believers as anything more than I'm to receive them because God commands me and it's to the glory of God every time I do it. Again, it's not because we're working something good. It's because that's what we're told to do, that that's what believers do. Paul begins here in a few moments, begins to quote Old Testament passages to declare to the Jews that are listening that the mercy of God was not just to be extended unto the Jews, but was to be extended unto all nations. So what happens? Neither the Jew or the Gentile had any reason to condemn or despise another believer in Christ. The Apostle Paul couldn't have known about the society and the culture that we live in today. But I will tell you, we are a nation and we are a, a, a group of believers, hopefully not us specifically, but I think we all fall prey to this, that instead of receiving one another, we are finding reasons to condemn and to destroy other believers just because they see something a bit different than we do. Waste time on Twitter and Facebook and you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm beginning to get more and more convinced it's a, it's a time waster. I'm, I'm having a hard time finding value. I'm not finding the encouragement and the reception of other believers. I'm finding picking out a little thing and destroying and devouring one another because they see it differently. 
And we do it all in the name of making somebody right and making ourselves right and proving somebody else wrong. Listen, this was going on in the church. Thankfully, they couldn't go home after a service and do it to one another on social media. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but I have found that how sad it would have been had social media existed with the situations going on in the Bible we read about today. Boy, what would the Twitter feed and Facebook news feed have been like in that day? But then I say, oh, wait a minute, it is. Just go look at it today. There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. There's just different events that have happened. There's just different things that have come along. But man is still just as darkened in his humanity as he's always been. The only light he has is the light of what Jesus Christ has shined in his heart. That's all he has. He has nothing more, nothing less. And yet, we somehow, who, by the way, I believe, we're held even more accountable than the Jew and the Gentile in these days who did not have a completed copy of the Word of God. We have the completed, entirety, inspired, preserved Word of God, and we still don't do as we should. They only had the Old Testament Scriptures to look to. And yet... Paul is going to point them to the realities to both Jew and Gentile. Here's why you ought to receive one another. The love that Christ has shown to you, you ought to show to one another. Christ is the one who, He is our peace. He has made us one in Himself. He has broken down the wall that separated us. In verse 10, Paul says, And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with His people. Now, right there, people will immediately be drawn to the fact. See right there? The Bible says Gentiles rejoice with his people. It's not to the exclusion of the Gentile. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were chosen as his people. There's no biblical qualms about that. But the same reality needs to be applied here that those Gentiles were being treated and welcomed into the same family that the Jews were. Again, he says what? Rejoice. Praise the Lord, he says in verse 11, all ye Gentiles and laud him, all ye people. Now that's not just a random quote that Paul thought up. He wasn't just trying to get their attention by giving them a good zinger of a quote or zinger of a verse. He's actually quoting Psalm 117.1. Let's turn back there quickly and I want you to see this. Paul actually is using Scripture. What a thought. Using Scripture to determine which, what is truth. Using the Scripture to determine what should be. Psalm 117 is a psalm of two verses. Two verses in this psalm. This is what Paul is quoting. Verse 1 of Psalm 117. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye Jews. Is that what it says? No, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Often people make the mistake of saying, you know what, you shouldn't study the Psalms because the Psalm is only about the Jews. Isn't it interesting? He says the whole, all the nations should praise God 
for His merciful kindness toward us. Jew and Gentile. Anyone in the family of God ought to rejoice and praise God for His merciful kindness. Paul is showing here and very clearly identifying that salvation was to be extended to all nations because here's the truth. No person can praise God without a knowledge of who God is. Okay, you, you, you and I cannot praise a God we don't know. That's why you can't praise a God of a Scripture if you don't know the Scripture. You can praise an idea of who God is. You can get a conception of who God is, but without a true knowledge of God, you can never truly praise Him. That's why we are so, so centered on the Word of God and what it says. There are wonderful resources out there that you can apply yourself to, but your greatest resource that you have in your home today is that copy of the Scriptures you have. There is no greater source of truth and no greater declaration of the merciful kindness that's been extended to you than what you find in the Bible. And yet, we don't want to live by the principles and the standards that the Bible says. We want to pull other things in. The Jews and the Gentiles were guilty of using, misusing their liberty instead of being united in the liberty that was found in this merciful kindness of God. Back in our text, Romans 15, 12, Paul continues to give Scripture. And again, Isaiah says, or Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, watch this, in him shall the Gentiles trust. The Gentiles are going to trust in the root of Jesse. Guess who the root of Jesse is? the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it says that the Gentiles are going to trust in this quote-unquote Jewish Messiah, who you have claimed is only a Jew Messiah. No, no, no. The Bible says, even Isaiah says, that this root of Jesse will be he in which even the Gentile trust. This is a quote from Isaiah 11. So let's turn back to Isaiah 11 and watch what Paul was quoting here. So every Jew in that congregation would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. There Paul goes again. He keeps using Scripture to prove his point. Go Paul, right? He's not making this up. He's not giving them philosophy. He's not giving them opinion. He's telling them this is what prophetically is going to happen. And he's saying it. Isaiah says it before it ever happened. Isaiah 11, let's, let's just look at verses 1 through 5. The entire chapter is filled with this, but this is where we get the idea here. Isaiah 11, verse number 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness, you ought to mark that, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. You could meditate that on all afternoon and all week, and I'm not sure you'd exhaust the well that's in that phrase. 
With his righteousness, he'll judge. You and I cannot even begin to approach what that righteousness is. Not fully. With his righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity. Fairness. Can I burst our bubble this morning? We don't judge with perfect righteousness and we don't judge with perfect equity. Ever. Now we think we do because it's based on our own righteousness. So we think fairness and equality is based upon our perception of righteousness. And don't go down the road of saying this is righteous anger. If you have to tell me you're responding in righteous anger, it's probably prideful anger. See, I think if we truly understood what Jesus Christ has actually received, he's received a bunch of nothings. I know, that doesn't fill a church. You want to fill a church, you tell everybody there's something. You tell everybody, listen, you add so much value to God. God needs you. He doesn't need you. He never has needed you. But this righteousness, this equity, for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Isn't it interesting you and I talk about faithfulness and we're not even faithful? Isn't it amazing how we tell other people how to be faithful and we're not even faithful? Isn't it amazing that we claim that we are the picture of faithfulness and yet we're not faithful to the basics? Yet Jesus will be this perfectly righteous, perfectly fair, perfectly faithful. Now drop down to verse number 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Isn't it interesting, Isaiah, before it ever happens, says the Gentiles are going to start looking for this Jewish Messiah. He's going to start seeking them. They're going to put their trust in him. Years before the Gentiles are really even thought to be included. Again, we look back. Isaiah was preaching forward. The Jews were greatly prejudiced against this part of the will of God. And by the way, we have parts of God's will that we're prejudiced against. There are things we read and we just take it and we say, I don't like that, so I'm going to change it so it more reads what I want it to say. It's okay, I've done it. We all do it. But we need to repent of that and say, listen, we are not to take the word of God and make it say and be prejudiced against it because of our viewpoint. The Bible says what it says, and you have to deal with the reality that sometimes the word of God says things our humanity does not like. As a matter of fact, that's a good sign. If you're reading your scripture and you're getting uncomfortable and you're getting to the place where I can't even sit still because of the conviction that's coming over me, that's a good thing. Don't call and say, preacher, I'm having all kinds of problems. I read the Bible and I'm getting convicted. I'll say, hang up and go read some more. Why are you talking to me? I'm not trying to be unkind, but that's what you need it to do. That's what I need it to do. 
I need the word of God to show me how unworthy I am over and over and over again. I need to constantly be reminded I'm not as good as I think I am. And every time I do that, God's glory is magnified more and more and more and more. I'm going to burst our bubble again. God is more glorified when you humbly submit to the reality of your own sin than when you post a Bible verse on Facebook and Twitter. Doesn't that blow you away? You think the best thing I can do is post a verse. No, the best thing you can do is be humbled under the weight of the word of God and say to God be the glory. Because I think sometimes, even in our desire, we put things out, we say things, we do things, not so that God will be glorified, but so that somebody will recognize we must be somebody very important who really must be a holy man or woman. That's not the purpose. God's glory is the purpose. This root, Christ is the fulfillment Christ is called a branch in the very same chapter of Isaiah 11, but he's also called the root, this particular root, a a specific identification. He's also called in Scripture a root out of a dry ground. That means that this Messiah would have a human nature. He would take on a human nature out of the family of Jesse. All those verses in the Bible, when you ignore the chronologies... And you say, that doesn't matter. It matters. Read the chronology in the first part of Matthew. Read it. Say, I don't understand. I can't even pronounce the names. Who cares? I'm serious. Who cares? Find out that branch, that root, Jesus pops up. He's the fulfillment of what Isaiah was saying. And Isaiah saying it before Jesus ever came onto the scene in human form. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible says about, back in our text of Romans 15, not only to rejoice and praise and that the Gentiles would trust, Paul gives them this thought. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Who is the God of hope to be? Who is he to fill? Jew and Gentile alike. Why? Because they have the same Messiah. They have the same purpose. The Gentiles who are now trusting in this Messiah that descended from Jesse. The Gentiles are trusting in a Jewish Messiah. You and I today, in its purest form, Trust in a Messiah who arose out of Jewry, right? You're a Gentile, but you're trusting in a Jewish Messiah. What's the matter with you? The Bible said you would. The Bible said that this is what's going to happen. And if we ever dare to look at Scripture and say, this is just for the Gentile, not the Jew, or this is just for us and not those individuals, or we begin to take the word of God and say, listen, I'm going I'm to keep this word for myself and I'm not going to recognize that there might be other believers who believe in the same Christ, who have confessed and repented of the same sin, who might see church a little bit different. They're still believers in Christ and they are to be received as such. Now make no mistake about it. 
Speaking the name of Christ doesn't make you a believer. There are people who say the name Jesus who don't trust him in anything except, I hope he gives me a good life today. But those who have been humbled under the reality of their sin and their own unworthiness and their their inability to bring anything of meritous works, who realize that this is just because of the merciful kindness of God being extended to me, they understand something about the reality that Paul's writing about here. He's not writing to people who have a superficial knowledge of God. He's writing to people, those who truly know this Messiah, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. This is a prayer that Paul offers. Now the God of hope. God is called the God of hope. Why? Because all hope with respect to the forgiveness of sin and any divine favor we receive is from God. The only reason you should have any hope today is because you have hope in God. Any other hope is false. If you have hope in something other than Christ, it is going to be pulled out from under your feet sooner rather than later. That which you're standing on today that you say, this is what my hope is, that bridge is going to break. What you are standing on better be the foundation of Christ alone. And if it's not, it is faulty foundation and it's going to crack and it's going to fall apart. If you're trusting in this church, you're trusting in your attendance, you're trusting in your works, you're trusting in your baptism, you're trusting in anything but Christ's finished work, You are on a faulty foundation. You are trusted in a Christ that didn't just make salvation possible. He is salvation. He is salvation. There is no other. Paul's praying about a God, not just a general prayer that we would all be healthy, wealthy, and wise. The God of a lot of churches now is just that. Lord, make us healthy, make us wealthy, and make us wise. Maybe our prayer ought to be, praise the Lord that you didn't condemn us and put us in a place called hell, what we really deserved, to burn eternally forever. Maybe that's what we ought to pray. Instead of praying for blessings and wealth and health, listen, those are all wonderful things. And by the way, don't take your health for granted. Don't take it for granted. The only reason you have breath in your lungs today is because God's still putting air there. He's still making that heart beat. But that's not our primary prayer. Lord, make me healthy. No, God, I'm going to glorify you because of what you've done. In your merciful kindness, you've extended to me something I did not deserve. Any hope that Christ is not the author and the finisher of is false and it's fatal. It'll kill you. Paul says, the same God fill you with joy and peace. Notice, they'll leave this out in believing. The prosperity gospel people stop and say, see, God wants you to be filled with joy and peace. No, you're misusing the text. Joy and peace is found in believing. It's found in belief. Where does belief come from? If you believe the Bible, it's a gift of God. Your belief is not because you got smart one day and woke up and said, I think I'll believe in Jesus Christ today. No, you believe because faith is a gift of God. You said, oh, but I chose to repent. No, repentance is the gift of God. 
When we proclaim, repent, and believe the gospel, we're saying that because that's a work that only Christ can do. And we're trusting, get this, we're trusting that Christ is going to grant that. That's why we beg for God to grant repentance and grant belief. And we don't say, now you repent and you believe on your own terms because we know that only God can give that. You say, that's a limited gospel. No, that is the gospel. Because that means God is going to do the work. That's why we say, if you are desiring to repent today and believe, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit of God convicting you. Do not hesitate. Call on Christ to save you. Come to Christ now. True joy and peace are indeed the gifts of God, but they're not the result of human nature. Joy and peace that's, that's, that's generated by human philosophy or fleshly comfort is temporary. And by the way, there are some comfortable things in this life that feel pretty good. There are places, earthly speaking, some of you know them for me, where I can go, where I get a sense of peace and joy, and I think, well, there's no better place to be than this, but even that's temporary. I could be seated on that place of my perfect peace and joy and within hours, within days, it will lose its joy and it'll lose its peace. As beautiful as it is. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That's my favorite place in the world and yet it's temporary. He's talking about a peace and a joy that goes even when circumstances aren't good. Even when trials come, even when struggles come, even when things aren't going your way, there's still joy and there's still peace. Paul said that's what we have in Christ. We have something that world, the world and all of its fleshly ideas cannot create. Listen, the reality is the more we're able to rejoice in our blessings that we have in Christ, the more peace we're going to have. The more we can say, listen, I find joy in my redemption. I find joy in the reality that my salvation is eternal. Even in the midst of misery, I still have peace. And I still have joy. Man cannot create that. Paul begins by saying that verse, now the God of hope, and he ends it, that you may abound in hope. He says, not only do I want you to have this hope that is in God alone, I want you to abound in it. Folks, the more you and I know about the joy and peace of Christ, the greater our hope grows, the joy increases, and we all in spiritual understanding realize we have so much more than we deserve. But then he gives the key to the entire thing, and we're going to stop in this verse, through the power of self. Yeah, everybody looked at her Bibles. What's he reading? Doesn't say that, does it? I'm not trying to be cute this morning, but it's not the power of your post-it note on your bathroom mirror that says, I'm going to be happy today. It's not that joyful thing you're going to see. It is through the power of the Holy Ghost. Only the presence of God can bring that. To have the Holy Ghost means you have Christ. Someone says, how do I know I'm saved? You ask them the question, does the Holy Spirit dwell within you? If they don't know what that means, they're not converted. If they know what it means, they're converted. 
If they say, well, he's here occasionally, there's a problem. He's always there. He never leaves once he indwells the believer. So every day, every trial, every struggle, every triumph, every mountaintop, every valley, everywhere I am, it's only, I'm going to only find joy and peace through the Holy Ghost. Paul says all of this to remind us too, by the way, in order to receive one another, you're going to have to have that same power. You can't just get up tomorrow and say, I'm going to be a nicer person to other believers tomorrow. You can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because your, your old humanity is going to get in the way. You're still going to view people. We're going to view one another through our human lens and we're going to determine who's valuable and who's not. Who brings us benefit? Who doesn't? Folks, if you think this isn't hard, you're not reading the same Bible I am. This, the Holy Spirit is the only one that can change the way we even view each other. If you simply view me by what you humanly know about me, you're going to find all kinds of faults. Matter of fact, I'll help you create the list. You can tell me which ones I'm right and which ones I'm wrong. I'll help you. I will. There are hundreds of them. There are hundreds of them in you. Paul does not say, clear up all the differences and then receive one another. He says, receive one another, faults and all, in the power of the Holy Ghost, because Christ has received both the Jew and the Gentile without asking them to clean up a single thing. That's real Christianity. That's real believers. Yet, so what's the problem? We have these verses here. Just do it, right? Everybody do it. Somebody said this, I, if, if, I, if I'm quoting you, tell, tell me afterwards and tell me you quoted this because I'm not sure who I heard it from. But the reality of what we're talking about here is that when we start looking at one another and we start receiving one another, we're always receiving people by what we think they ought to be instead of who Christ actually says they are. Folks, this will change your life from a, from, even from a practical perspective. When you realize you live in a home full of sinners, it really does clear up a lot of things. And by the way, don't make it your job to tell them just how sinful they are. You have too much of your own sin to worry about instead of calling everybody else's sin out. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe my church, I can't believe my church family did that to me. Why? They're sinners. Yeah, well, they should know better. Well, do you? Do you always do right? Remember, this all goes back to accountability to God. You don't have to give me the response. Matter of fact, I don't want it. Us Baptists, we don't have a, we don't have a little room that you come in with a wall between it, with a little door that I open up and say, what are you, what are you repenting of today? And you say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I'm not a, I'm not a, this isn't, this isn't, a forgiveness. This isn't Catholicism. This is between you and the Lord. This is between you and Christ. And even how we receive one another, we're accountable for it. Paul simply says, listen, to glorify God together, you have to receive one another as Christ has received you. Therein lies the great challenge. Let's glorify God together and let's do it according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together if you would.
Next week, we'll begin with verse number 14, and we'll, again, we'll see how far we get next week. But let's think about today. Let's think about what we've already heard this morning. Father, as we bring this collective time to a close in your word, Lord, I thank you that your word has been and will be fulfilled perfectly. There is not a single promise that will not be fulfilled. There's not a single type or a picture that has been given that will not be revealed. Father, I thank you for the reality of being one in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Lord, I pray that we as a church would preach a gospel that does not exclude, preaches the truth, holds to the word of God, and we know that that does not exclude. You have not given us the right to determine who should hear, who should not hear. You have simply told us to preach and proclaim the gospel, not just to the world outside of these walls, but to preach the gospel to each other. Salvation is of the Lord, but as you instruct us and guide us, we realize we grow in our faith. We're growing in our sanctification. We are to become more like Christ. And may we take this very simple principle this morning about receiving one another to the glory of God. May you teach us and instruct us that we have understanding of what Paul was writing about here. Lord, remove any of our own personal opinions, philosophies, and personal biases and prejudices towards it, and just simply read the Word and allow the Holy Spirit to instruct and give us discernment. Father, my heart's desire is that this church and we as a church family would live with these kind of principles to receive one another. Father, I thank you that we are receiving the doctrine, the meat of the word, the the deep and the, the theological truths. But Lord, help us understand that the practical things, they matter. And only as we live what we believe is our Christianity, what we is a true picture of who you really are. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for the rest that's going to happen today. We thank you for the next service already in advance, Lord. May your hand be upon it. May the Holy Spirit move in our midst. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.